I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, joining us by phone, Dr. Gary Slutkin is a physician, epidemiologist, infectious disease control specialist, and founder and executive director of Cure Violence. Recognized as an innovator in violence prevention, Dr. Slutkin sees violence as a contagious process. Applying lessons learned from more than a decade of fighting epidemics in Africa and Asia, his organization, Cure Violence, uses a public health approach to interrupting and stopping the spread of violence. Dr. Slutkin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be with you, Shannon. Great. Well, let's start out just by telling us a little bit about your work through Cure Violence and how you approach the issue of violence reduction. Well, uh, like you said, I'm um, an infectious disease doctor um, in the first place. So my, my background is on working on epidemics like tuberculosis and cholera, and and then I worked at World Health with AIDS, um, starting some of the first AIDS programs. And in that, um, with that background, I learned how to prevent things from spreading, and also learned a lot, especially on the HIV/AIDS work on behavior and changing behavior. And um, when I uh, switched to working on this problem, uh, it uh, it wasn't immediately obvious to me the problem of violence, but it became clear um, fairly shortly that violence was behaving exactly like the other contagious diseases in that one event leads to another, leads to another. And this spread we see in all kinds of manifestations of violence, whether we're talking about riots, um, or whether we're looking at um, gangs or tribes or militias that fight each other and with repeated retaliations, or even in genocide. And um, so we began to apply some of the same methods and applications of public health to reducing the spread of violence, which means detecting and interrupting events and changing behaviors. And this um, system or method that we've used for other contagious processes works very well for reducing violence. So let's talk about that methodology a little bit and make it more concrete for our listeners. When you think about a disease, you think about, you know, hand washing and reducing germs and trying to isolate people who could spread the disease. When you're talking about violence, you're talking about something that in large part is about the way that people process information and threats. So how did you apply the methodology of disease control to something that seemingly is a different animal? 
Yeah, they all, uh, all of the um, infectious or contagious diseases look different from each other, and that the behaviors need to, uh, they are, the behaviors are different from each other that uh, perpetuate it, and also the, the means of transmission are different as well. There, the, the ways in which violence is spread is really through um, exposure, um, but not through um, breathing it in or through um, drinking it or eating it it's, or through a mosquito bite. It's by um, the, it having been done to you or you're seeing it. Mm. And this is, this is what the data shows is that exposure to violence and the amount of exposure to violence um, correlates very well with the likelihood of, of doing violence. And there's, and we even know the brain mechanisms for this. And then, of course, there's susceptibility. You know, not everyone who's exposed to flu or violence or whatever does it. There's, there's issues of susceptibility. And a lot of that has to do with proximity and closeness of contact. So one of the challenges for CVE is that radicalization really affects such a small number of people compared to the general population. So oftentimes the question arises, how do you focus these efforts or how do you target these efforts? So I was hoping you could discuss the methods that Cure Violence uses to effectively target individuals in your violence reduction efforts. So the, the methods then that are in common between these is that it's, it's essential to, um, to find potential cases or uh, very um, urgently likely cases, for example, a case of TB to prevent it from um, spreading to others in the family or to friends, as it's um, uh, important to find a potential person who is about to do violence or is considering doing violence because then those acts cause more as well as the friends and the contacts. Um, pick up the ideas in proximity as well. So when you applied this approach to violence prevention in the United States, what did you find? Well, um, our, our applications, of course, began in the U.S. I mean, I left World Health to come back to the U.S., and we began these applications here. Now I just want to say at the outset that we're working throughout Latin America and in South Africa, and we worked in the Kenya election, and we've also done a lot of work and are doing work right now in Iraq and, and Syria. So the um, what we found is that we could get between 40 and 70 percent drops in lethal events, in shootings and killings, um, with the health worker community-based system that is ordinarily the way in which it works. And furthermore, um, we uh, had five, I think it's pushing now six independent evaluations from groups like the CDC and the Justice Department and Johns Hopkins that show this. Um, they, these evaluations have shown that um, uh, events, potential events can be dropped as high as 100%. Um, retaliations can be prevented up to 100%. We've got uh, about five neighborhoods that have gone down to zero um, and that were very seriously violent places for a, a period of a year to two years. 
Um, we've also found that the um, the thinking changes not just in the people who we're working with directly, but that the other people who are at high risk, whether they're um, uh, gang members or others, that uh, that their thinking changes by studies, scientific studies that people have done on the work, um, so that they are um, not um, thinking that they would do violence or much less likely under the same types of motivations or precipitations that usually do um, cause people to do violence. So in other words, like in many other public health things, you're not only preventing the event, which of course prevents more events, but you're also working a little bit and then quite a bit upstream so that you're moving a group further away from that line of doing it. When you're doing something in public health where you're working not just as a detection machine the way um, law enforcement might define, you're also um, interacting with the, the peer group or likely peer group and then the next peer group so that everyone begins to take on healthier and safer behaviors and feel that that is more socially acceptable um, and agreeable um, among peers to um, be going more this way than that way. That's actually a great segue um, to the topic of this podcast, which is, of course, countering violent extremism. So I think a lot of people would say, yes, but violent extremism is different because of the ideological component. How do you respond to that, and how do you think that this kind of public health-based solution could be useful for countering violent extremism? Well, um, the this is different is is said about almost everything I've ever been involved with. HIV, we're talking to people in communities about AIDS, and saying, well, our, our culture is different, or our morality is different, or our, our religion is different. Or, and and likewise in violence, you know, we've heard, well, the South Side of Chicago isn't like the West Side, or we've said, you know, family violence isn't like street violence. But we've we found that we've been able to adapt the basic approach so far to street violence, to family violence, to uh, violence in cartels, where there's a lot of, you know, the the work on gang violence and and uh, cartel violence and also violence among tribes, which we work with in southern Iraq. I mean, there's a lot of uh, of ideology, as it were. I mean, the ideology is, you know, attachment to my group, to my identity. These these syndromes morph to each other in a way. We, we see this really as different syndromes of the same disease. I guess what I've been trying to say is that there's... Um, the differences in culture and um, and reason don't um, hold up that don't hold up much. What it does mean that we you need to adapt in in epidemiology. You have to always adapt to what are you know who's doing it and where are they and what is their social network and um, how are they best approached? What are their um, conversations and um, complaints and so on. You know, people who are in um, gangs, 
they have very, very, very strong identifications with their group. I mean, they will tell you the history of their group. They will talk talk about what it stands for. Um, they'll tell you about how many people have died in the fight, in the struggle. People's given reasons for doing things are not usually the reason that they're doing things. The the primary driver of of much behavior is what people think their friends expect of them um, for violence of, of many types. But it, it also holds true for many other behaviors. And this is, um, I mean, there's dopamine systems that reward systems that drive one, and there's pain centers that, that drive the other, and they keep you on this path of, of peers, peer acknowledgement, um, and uh, avoiding the possibility of isolation from peers or disapproval from peers. And this, of course, is the backbone of contagion, doing what friends are doing, doing what others around you are doing, that's, that's contagion. You know, and just to point out how important this is, is, you know, it is, it is dominant over death or, you know, fear of imprisonment or anything like this. And, and teenagers are so wired to you know, not be concerned about consequences as much as you know, group, um, in a way, identity. Given what we know then about the way that young people process threats and process information, what is the cure for this type of behavior? As you suggested, it has so many components, biological, psychological, and social. As an epidemiologist and somebody who works in the violence reduction field, what can you suggest in terms of the appropriate responses to this threat? So the, the antidote to this really is being able to be engaged with, interacted with in a very genuine way by people who you see is in your um, peer group and likely it best works when it's people who you already know who can um, help you um, for your own benefit um, go in a different direction or slow down that direction. And that's how events get stopped, is by this kind of network of health workers, but they don't, you know, they don't look like health workers. They're, they, they're community, pure, highly selected, highly trained people who are not law enforcement. They're not government, um, but they're, they're extremely beneficial to the community and they're trusted and they have access. And it's very um, invisible to the public. I mean, what public health um, is able to accomplish through these methods of working with community is to be able to detect rare events to get um, and to prevent spread to change behavior and it's all done um, you know, without people knowing that you know people don't know how uh, public health works because we don't like get on television and say here's the TB patient we got him hmm. and we don't follow people for um, in order to catch them we're trying to help people. You know, I'm, I was reflecting on uh, the um, Orlando, the story of the Orlando 
shooter who had been on an FBI watch list or twice, I, I think, and probably for months. And, I mean, it's such a... I understand that there is a need for something of this order to be going on, I, I guess. But, I mean, how long does someone get watched without being um, helped onto a different path without... Um, I mean, it's like watch from the point of view of a health, uh, public health, how long would you watch somebody um, develop cancer or develop tuberculosis? Um, and then to catch them at that time, no, there needs to be some other, um, you know, this, this fellow had shown all kinds of signs earlier on. So there's both late signs and early signs that the cure violence approach, um, you know, is is looking for and getting information for for the purpose of helping people and helping the community stay safe. Well, let's stop there for a second because I think um, there are two important points that are worth clarifying and particularly um, expounding upon. So number one, are you saying that this public health approach requires not just intervening with the individual, but actually transforming the peer group itself and sort of lowering the acceptability of violence within the peer group? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's three layers to this in its um, most simplest form of, of management of, of epidemic or contagious issues. So there is the uh, what we call the interruption, looking for what is someone going to do something today or tonight or tomorrow. You know, it's like getting that kind of information to be able to prevent the events. And then there's the ongoing conversation with such people who uh, may be at very high risk or thought they could be. And we're staying with them for six months to two years, for um, helping them in their lives, but um, also um, shifting their thinking about whether they would do violence. We don't even have to shift their thinking about the world or about um, some aspects of religion or even of complaints that they may have. In fact, we may hear those complaints and even validate some of them and um, getting more support into that. And it's, um, these are, there's different types of workers with, uh, but it's an overlapping overall system. It's not magical that there's very little SARS around now, that there's, you know, very little bird flu. You know, plague shows up once in a while still, even in the U.S., but it doesn't go anywhere. It's because there's an infrastructure, health infrastructure that's invisibly keeping things uh, cool. That's exactly the second point that I wanted to elaborate upon, which is when it comes to violence prevention, particularly preventing violent extremism, a lot of talk is around the need for civil society to be in the lead or for communities to be in the lead. When you are taking this public health approach, how do you make sure that you have local stakeholders that are trained up and have the motivation to engage in this work? Well, um, I'm glad you brought that up in that way in particular. So um, 
civil society and communities are, um, yeah, people are talking about they need to be engaged, but what they are generally doing is is not sufficient. It, in fact, it, it can never be sufficient. It's, it's like community engagement in controlling TB or community engagement in controlling AIDS. It's, yeah, they need, they, their specificity to the work of controlling contagious processes that involve the community, but having the community just come to meetings or say various things or give various messages, it, it will, I don't know what those messages would be anyway, they're, it's insufficient. It, it really requires um, direct interaction with these specialized workers who are highly selected from the community who already are there, who have that kind of access and that kind of trust and that kind of credibility. The good, the, the good parts of that conversation that's occurring in the country violent extremism conversations is the recognition that the, the law enforcement part of this is insufficient and that the gap and where this is really going to be uh, effective is going to come from communities and, and what's called civil society. But they can't just be like um, said, you know, do it or start talking to people or go door to door or start to message from um, the community or the mosque or whatever. Now there's um, there's a specificity to um, kind of mapping this out as to where there are community needs that would lead to this area and other areas and then finding the right workers who have genuine, genuine, genuine trust and access, and then training them in how to be um, interactive with the people who are most likely involved in a way that is acceptable to, the, to those um, people. That, and so there's a tremendous amount of training to the cure violence approach. I mean, it's really hundreds of hours. And then more and more experience because they, um, you know, it's, it's tricky like being an emergency medical technician is tricky. You come on situations that you have to figure out, you know, how to best interact with them, how to approach them so that you're, um, you're successful. And Dr. Slutkin, you mentioned that there's this invisible infrastructure in place to deal with the threat of public health crises. And it's sort of always working behind the scenes to detect threats. When there is a serious threat, it leaps into motion. Do we have anything like that on the violence prevention side? And if not, what would it take to build that kind of civilian-led architecture? Well, um, it requires, we're, we're um, sketching this out. We have uh, quite a few of the pieces, and in different cities, there's different parts of the pieces in place. I mean, I should say, I mean, New York City has uh, a good infrastructure. Now, there's not the health department. It isn't um, designed for CVE. It's designed for uh, reducing and keeping violence down. And so there, there's 19 communities in 
um, New York City that have an outreach network that has a connection to um, the health department and they have been trained by Cure Violence. And it's in the city budget and it's not law enforcement and it's uh, successfully reducing shootings and killings in neighborhoods. Um, Los Angeles has similar, has something similar. Um, they also have, and you know, both of these uh, cities have, um, are having fairly successful violence reduction programs that are citywide. Uh, Baltimore has um, something of this nature and, and they all go by, uh, these are cure violence adaptations or um, trained groups in, in New York. Likewise in Baltimore, there's uh, either four or five communities now that, for example, when there were riots, there were not riots in the neighborhoods that had um, the cure violence adaptation there, which is called Safe Streets. And, um, and this is now being expanded into the place where Freddie Gray was, um, was killed. So there's kind of a relationship between the health department, the community groups that are, um, are respected, and uh, credible, and uh, then there's interrupters and outreach workers that flow from there, um, and um, and then there is an interaction also with the hospitals and the rest of the health system, so that when there are any events, that the retaliations are prevented, and that so it's a feedback system. And there's other roles in reducing trauma, and outreach, and changing behaviors that are um, are also at play. Now, you know, the the tweaking of of uh, cure violence into counterviolence extremism um, simply requires that there's a little more intention um, in this direction in some of the neighborhoods. Um, but but the way in which interrupters and outreach workers for cure violence work there they ordinarily um, do get um, the kind of information and kind of understanding of, of what's going on so they're able to um, cool things down or um, that even would be of that nature. That actually anticipated my last question, which was about whether the current efforts that cure violence is undertaking in the United States and elsewhere could be expanded to address the challenge of violent extremism just by making some minor adaptations. Well, we're we're um, we've been consulted by a, a lot of places on this um, by uh, in Europe, in um, North Africa in the UK, in um, several US cities, and, um, and there's a couple places where we're involved in planning for that adaptation. And so, um, yeah, we are, um, we're being called upon a lot to help with the thinking and design in the area of reducing the mass shootings and the and the recruitment of um, violent extremism. And Dr. Slutkin, is there anything else you think it's important for our listeners to understand about what it would mean to think of violent extremism as an epidemic or as a public health challenge? Well, um, it's 
you know, these, I think the, it isn't hard for people to see that this, these are, this is a contagious process, that events are leading to more events, which are leading to more events. And I think it isn't hard for people to see that, um, you know, certain ways of talking about the population cause more defiance and cause more contagion. So um, the, the health approach and cure violence's work, and specifically in violence, this is not so different from the other things that we do, but it, it basically requires that we shift ourselves from thinking about this as a moralistic problem or a problem of enemies, which is really a hard move, to basically just a contagious set of behaviors that um, the health sector knows and has a lot of expertise in, uh, in working on. I think that's a really fantastic um, note to end on. So I want to thank you, Dr. Slutkin from Cure Violence for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you for really sharing your unique perspective about how we might be able to counter the threat of violent extremism using this public health approach. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on your program. And I appreciate talking with you very much.